1: Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. Delighted to bring to you a, um, I think, first-time guest to the show, if I'm not mistaken, and that's Arthur Millick. He is the executive director of the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. Many of you know much of the Claremont Institute, who regularly listen to this show, or I am privileged to be a senior fellow. And I saw a piece on uh, Real Clear Politics by Arthur titled, A New Conservatism. Must emerge. And I have to tell you, whenever I see someone writing about a new conservatism or a title like a new conservatism I get just a little bit nervous. And then I opened it and I saw, oh, well, this this is going to be the kind of thing I've been talking about, the new old conservatism, perhaps, or a new originalist conservatism. And it's a hell of an essay. And I want to go through it paragraph by paragraph with our author, with our guest, Arthur. Arthur, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Airwaves of Phoenix.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You betcha. First-time guest, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up, how you came to be doing what you're doing, and what it is you are now doing.
0: Uh, Well, it's a bit of a funny story. I mean, I I immigrated here from Russia when I was just a kid. I grew up in Atlanta, and the truth is I was not particularly interested in politics uh, in college, even very much in graduate school. I studied political philosophy, and I, you know, cared about Shakespeare and Plato, especially. Uh, And after graduate school, I had been working on Machiavelli for a long time, and I thought, well, you know, I'm interested in war. That's what Machiavelli's interested in. So I'll come to D.C., and I'll try to, you know, do foreign policy. Uh, And then I learned that there's no such thing as statesmanship, really, in Washington. There's just bureaucracies that control things and make mistakes, but hide those mistakes, and just keep going on their own inertia. So I became a bit bored with foreign policy as it was done, and luckily I found a a place first at the Heritage Foundation and then at the Claremont Institute where I could actually do what I studied, which is political philosophy.
1: Fantastic. Um, I love that bio. How old were you when you came from Russia? Two. Wow, fabulous. And your parents, they have memories of the old Russia, the old Soviet Union?
0: Well, of course, I grew up you know, in a Russian-speaking world yeah. with a bunch of uh, you know, refugees from yeah. the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the memories of that were very uh, large in, in our household.
1: We'll get back to that because we now have to deal with this interesting irony that makes all the sense in the world to me, but I would love to hear you out on, which is we have a Russian immigrant directing something called the Center for the American Way of Life. Talk to us about that.
0: Yes, it's a bit bizarre, and it's one of these things. That it it only is America, it, it, only at know? first
1: glance. I get it intuitively, but and 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 any front, anyone from Eastern Europe would get it intuitively as well. But you tell yeah, tell the audience about it. This is great.
0: Yes, no, it's true. It's it's a bizarre thing, and it only happens in America. Right, um, right. But you know, right. uh, people there are people like myself who you know deeply love this country, are deeply attached to it. And see what's happening in it. Uh, I know a lot of Russian speakers, and many of them—not to turn this, you know, political immediately—but many of them voted for Trump because they see some of the same trends that they lived through in the Soviet Union. Now, I, I, I don't like this strand of, you know, conservatism that says that we're being, <coughs> you know, excuse me, overtaken by communists that we being turned into the Soviet Union, it's not. It's its own thing. Uh, it has its own unique principles. And, you know, I like to tell this anecdote, that in the Soviet Union, let's say starting in the 70s, but certainly in the 80s, everybody knew that the propaganda was fake. Nobody, nobody who, you know, read the official newspapers, saw the official films, thought <laughs> believe that, yes, communism is going to emerge. Everyone knew this. Everyone knew
1: this, you're saying.
0: That's right. They Uh, they all saw this as lies from the elite that are just trying to hold their power. And in a certain way today, we are in a worse state Mm -hmm. uh, because the propaganda is so subtle, uh, tacit. It comes from everywhere. You mean here in America? You mean in America? Here in America. Yeah, okay. Right. With you. Good. So enshrined in absolutely every element, from the textbooks to the commercials, that many people still believe the official propaganda on identity politics. We haven't reached that Soviet stage, so to speak, where they know that it's threadbare and empty.
1: That's a fantastic uh, point. That's a fantastic point. So in in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, everyone knew that Pravda was a lie. Uh, What they were reading in in a newspaper called Truth was a lie. Uh, The only people who didn't know it was a lie were perhaps the Democrats in America, some of them, most of them. (laughs) Um, And now here we are in America where we have maybe not the equivalent kind of propaganda, but a great deal of it. And most Americans or at least half don't know it. That's what you're pointing out. That's a brilliant insight.
0: Yeah, I think so. Now, I don't want to go overboard with this uh, analogy because – in a certain way, America is still a very healthy country. Sure, uh, I know that that sounds like a bizarre thing. Well, the to fact say, that you and I can say
1: these things, so that Ilan Omar exactly. can condemn the president in front of the House of the Representatives uh, as a racist and a tyrant, would be would not be something you could have done in the Soviet Union, right?
0: Yes, that's right. exactly right. 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 And we still have the freedom of assembly, and you know, uh, we we still vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't live in fear uh, daily of being dissidents by the state. Um uh, but it does seem like to some degree that is growing more and more. Um, they might live in fear that
1: they they might live in fear of being dissidents in front of the private sector, interestingly enough.
0: Uh, yes. You I think, think about what right.
1: social media does, what you can do, what, what, how you can lose a job at Disney. I mean, you know, in the private world, you may have this problem more so than in the public in some respects, in some respects.
0: No, you know, Seth, you're exactly right. And it's worthwhile to think about the, the dynamic. Um, you know, in the Soviet Union, uh, everybody knew that to be a dissident was a risk and that thinking thoughts outside was a risk outside of the official truths of the system. But once you knew that the system was lying to you in in Pravda and in all of the other propaganda organs, you had a kind of inner freedom from it. You knew you would go to jail, but you had an inner freedom because you knew it was a lie, and you went about your life, but internally uh, there was something dignified.
1: You had a truth in you. you had different. a truth. You could live with truth as long as you could live with it in your own mind, and soul is what you're saying. That's right. Right. Okay, I'm with
0: you. That's right. right. Whereas, whereas in America, the nature of our propaganda is so much more uh, insidious, is so much more subtle uh, that it doesn't punish you by sending you to jail, but it punishes you in the way exactly as you said. Believe with us, they tell you. Or you'll lose your job. You won't be able to care for your family. Believe with us or the press will destroy you and ruin your reputation. And so you need to stay silent and uh, sit down and be quiet. Uh, and everybody had, many people I should say, had that feeling of what America is becoming, which is why voting for Trump was you know, somewhat of a desperate measure for many people, not all, but many, thinking that these liberties are disappearing. We can no longer speak except for at the cost of the destruction of our reputations and our jobs. We don't believe in the official propaganda, and Trump is the channel through which we can express that knowledge.
1: I was talking the other day, Arthur, about it's becoming oddly – I don't know if it's going to happen in the public sector. I, I worry about it. You're in D.C., when I see what they're doing with the National Guard and the concertina wire and the kind of talk you get from Nancy Pelosi, but I see more and more in the private sector. It's almost as if there's this. Again, we don't want to go overboard, but you know, you don't get to the ends without doing the beginnings, and that's why we're, I'm warning about this anyway. You don't, you don't, you don't mean the ends without meaning the beginnings, and it reminded me a little bit of the Soviet Union's visa work card system, where you had to join the party to have work. And it almost seems you have to toe a line in this country in so many industries to have work, or to at least keep your job. Does that worry you at all, or am I way overboard
0: on this? Oh, it's right. It's 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 one part. It's one part. It's yeah, agreed. Part one part. One part. One part. Yeah. Of, of this constellation of towers uh-huh. that the left has. Um, look, uh, it, it, two things are I think worth mentioning here. Um, it's not just the employers. Uh, in addition to that, it's the universities and yeah. the schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Fortune 500. Right. It's much of the media and the image-making industries. It's big tech. Mm-hmm. It's the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And maybe soon enough, it'll be the national security state, as they keep implying, and as you just said, with the National Guard.
1: Yeah, no question um, about so it. So
0: it's, it's this massive constellation of power. And what makes that so um, terrible is the doctrine with which they are armed, and that is the doctrine of identity politics.
1: Okay, hold that thought right um, there, Arthur. Um, we're going. I'm going to keep you for a while. Is that okay? We have a lot to do here. We haven't even gotten is. to your <laughs> We haven't even gotten to the most to the essay yet, which I do want to go through in detail because it's fabulous and important reading. Arthur Millick is the executive director of the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life in Washington D.C. A new um, a new project of the Claremont Institutes, a welcome project of the Claremont Institutes. This will be the home of a reinvigorated and restored conservatism. I can think of no one better to be directing it. You can hear how how rich this man's mind is. We're going to plummet some more when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. And his most, uh, maybe his card... Calling card speech, Ronald Reagan, in his time for choosing speech, he talks – he tells the story of two friends of his who were talking to a Cuban refugee, a businessman who had helped – who had escaped from Castro. And in the midst of the story, one of the friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to, meaning America, which I think is probably a part of the story of our guest, Arthur Millick and his family. Who emigrated here, immigrated here from Russia as he now heads the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. The importance of the American way of life perhaps appreciated more from families who didn't have it from from the get-go, who who, who understood what 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 it was like to live in a non-American way of life. Arthur, is that a fair summary? Yeah, regrettably, in a certain way
0: it is. Um you know, there, there there must be the constant memory uh, of some alternative to the uh, liberty that one enjoys. You know, Rousseau has a nice uh, phrase, he says, that, uh, that we don't know what good health is. We don't appreciate good health and justice until it's taken away from us.
1: Right, you.
0: right. Uh, And so there has to be this constant memory that's kept alive, like in that Reagan quote that, you know, this is really the only place in the world that has for a very long time continued to support, promote, safeguard political liberty. And there are no alternatives to America in this regard.
1: That was another line Um, of his in that speech. This is our last stand. This is the last stand, which is where we're going to with the title of your essay, A New Conservatism Must Emerge. But before I do that, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this, this, this comparison or an, analog you drew between what people living in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s knew about their propaganda machines and knew that they were lies versus what substantial portions of Americans don't know about the propaganda they're getting in their elementary and secondary schools and the media I'm just I'm just it's such an interesting contrast and you had mentioned Plato I'm a little better at Plato than Rousseau do you do you see some 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 comparisons to 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 the to to the story of the cave here don't you this is this is what we're dealing with right and 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 people think maybe here they see reality when they watch CNN or they listen to MSNBC, and yet for people like you and myself, we want to go in and do everything we can, everything we can, to get them into the sunlight. Is there something like that going on here?
0: Well, just for your listeners, you know, Plato's Cave is a very famous allegory where he Uh, Socrates describes what a city is really about and where its uh, beliefs come from. And he says that citizens really sit inside of a cave and they're chained. And behind them are, uh, is a fire. And behind that fire and in front of that fire between the citizens and the fire are, uh, shadows. Images, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Images that are cast on the cave's wall, uh, that these cave dwellers who are chained down and don't know any better believe. Uh, they and think and that's so reality. That they think they're looking. Well, they think at think that's real reality, world. right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And those images are, are the poets mm-hmm. uh, that give them all of their beliefs about the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, look, Plato's point is that well, all cities, all countries live in certain kinds of caves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that uh, Plato, in a way, is moderate in that he thinks that some uh, some images are more salutary and more true mm-hmm. than others.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And the trouble is that I, I don't think that it's only CNN, you know, that presents images on a cave. I, I mean, mean, our side does similar things, sure. of course. Sure. Uh, but the question is, you know, what exactly are these images that, that the other side is now projecting? And are they harmful for the thing that we... Uh, should agree to is the good that we're trying to preserve, which is political liberty, or let's say not tyranny. right. And right. here, I think is where we get into uh, the discussion of what those images really good. are, and i would I would just say broadly speaking, it's what you know conservatives call identity politics yep. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and you know to understand it, I'll just try to summarize this very quickly. To best understand it, one shouldn't think of it as the politics of identity. So in a way, it's a misnomer. Uh, It has nothing to do with that necessarily. What it is is um, a, uh, uh, a theory about how all of history is oppression against the marginalized, and that oppression is done by the majority. And in America, these are not my words, these are the words of many of the thinkers that uh, on the left that I have read, and have saved the time of your listeners from reading, Mm -hmm. they unabashedly say it's white America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what you have here is this theory that says all of history is this kind of oppression, and uh, justice means a rebellion from this kind of oppression. Mm -hmm. And so what are these means of oppression? Well, the means are, uh, opinions that people have of other groups. It's the laws. And so to use a word that the left likes to use, it's the entire system.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so the idea of identity politics is to undermine the system which allegedly oppresses marginalized groups. And the way to do that is to, one, take away the institutions that the oppressor group has and uh, use the laws, as Ibram Kendi, one of the, you know, lately one of the stars of this world, yep. to use the laws to, I'm quoting him, intentionally discriminate right. against the oppressor group. Right. And you do that through laws, but you also do that by uh, taking away their freedom of speech
2: mm-hmm.
0: under the idea that if they cannot speak things, they will cease to think those things. That's right. And all of that must be followed with, a very vast propaganda campaign to teach you that you are an oppressor, to teach you to despise yourself, and in turn to look at the so called marginalized groups as pure, uh, saintly, beautiful, to look up to them and to submit to rule to them. Can that I, is. Can broad- I say something thinking.
1: strong? In, in, in a way, wouldn't you also say you have to teach them to hate your country, hate their country, hate its history anyway?
0: Yes. Yes, because uh, yes. The, country the, <laughs> right. the country is the system. Right. The country is the system that has uh, continued this kind of oppression and marginalization. Right. That's right. You and, need a new country.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, you, you might need to fundamentally transform it. You might call it even uh, in some in some other languages a revolution, uh, which is where where we're going here with. Um, the opening of your essay where you talk about being engaged in a regime-level struggle, which I want to get to with you in a moment. We're going to break. I want to do one more thing on identity politics with you, Arthur, and then get into this regime-level struggle you write about and what conservatism needs. So we will be right back with Arthur Millick, who's happy to take your calls, too, if you want, six zero two five zero eight. I haven't been so on page with a guest in I don't know how long, but it's great. You can get his piece at Real Clear Policy or at the Claremont Institute's uh, website, claremont.org. I'm Seth. He's Arthur Millick. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have as our guest Arthur Millick. He is the executive director of the Center for the American Way of Life uh, for the Claremont Institute, and we're talking about his piece. A new conservatism must emerge. Uh, I guess I guess we can get into it this way. I wanted to say one more thing about identity politics, but it's so important a part of your piece. Let me just give the audience your opening. America is currently engaged in a regime level struggle that will, will preserve or destroy the purpose that has defined it. On one st- on one side stands the American way of life, characterized by Republican self-government and the habits of mind and character necessary to sustain it. On the other side stands identity politics, which demands the perpetual punishment and humiliation of so-called oppressor groups combined with the unquestioned rule of the so-called marginalized. These two regimes are in conflict and cannot coexist. Arthur, you did a really good um, definition, further or deeper definition of identi- identity politics in the previous segment. Is it too easy or facile for me to say that when I think of identity politics, I think of it in fairly simple terms such as the notion that race determines thought? And I say it because I know what that comes with in the pregnancy it brings. But I can't get around thinking that that's what we're being told here, subtly and not so subtly. Race determines – some might say character. I say thought. Is that too facile? Uh,
0: no, actually, I don't think it is. Uh, I think at bottom that is one of the uh, theories that governs uh, identity politics. Okay, uh, I can say a little bit about that if yeah. you'd like me yeah, to. Yeah, sure, please. Well, what it means is, and this is elaborated by uh, some of the most influential theorists <clears throat> of, uh, well, identity politics, but, but, but in particular. Uh, the, the kind of movement to criminalize or outlaw hate speech, and mm-hmm. the theory is something like this, mm-hmm. that, um, you see, the majority uh, of Americans are too, they are too mentally distorted, deformed by their power, mm-hmm. and they are, uh, everything they do is uh, targeted to uh, maintaining that power such that they cannot hear the reasonable decent pleas uh, or arguments uh, of the marginalized. And so what that means is that uh, their race, uh, their power in this example, but they do think that there is something about whiteness. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is partly the anti-colonial studies. They think that there is something particularly, they never say biological, but something particularly evil about whiteness. While on the other hand, uh, race has determined... Uh, the the self-understanding and the intellect of uh, the marginalized Mm -hmm. insofar as this goes, that they somehow have a truer understanding of justice because uh, they can understand how the system, the entirety of the system, is oppressive, Uh, whereas the oppressor cannot. So they know who deserves what. So that's number one. Number two, they are intellectually superior because they know about white fragility, white psychology, etc. But the oppressor, which, as I I keep saying again, the left identifies as white, cannot understand anything about the experiences or the culture of the marginalized. Mm -hmm. And when they try to, Mm -hmm. it's some kind of uh, appropriation. It's some kind of harm because it's a bad imitation, Mm -hmm. even when it's sympathetic Mm -hmm. of the marginalized. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I agree with you. it, It requires that kind of explanation, as they put it. But it is, in a way, equivalent to saying that one's race does determine one's mind. But they don't stop there. They don't just say, well, so everybody is just determined. Right. Right. Everybody cannot get out of their perspective. They right. never say that. Right. What they say instead is, no, there is a superior perspective.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is the perspective of these marginalized groups.
1: Right. Right. So they say, right. So you can you can egress or, or 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 be consciousness raised out of your whiteness if you accept the party line, so to speak, if you speak like if you use the code language, if you use the shibboleths. If you adopt the ideology of an Ibrahim Kendi, perhaps this was a short segment, um, so I apologize. We'll have a longer one. Let's go into it when we come back on the other side of this break, Arthur, and um, and, uh, and 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 uh, get to the rest of your great essay as well. A new conservatism must emerge—a conservatism that doesn't understand this point. The larger thesis being a conservatism that doesn't understand this fight, this struggle, this house divided is a conservatism that cannot succeed and that will allow America to fail and fall. That's why we have to understand this. Arthur Millick is our guest and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have with us for this extended interview Arthur Millick. He is the executive director of the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life based in Washington, D.C. We're at war with – we're at political war with – perhaps an ideological war with identity politics as Arthur has been describing it. And Arthur, if I understood you right, if I read you right – you don't have to necessarily be a member of an oppressed minority so long as you, um, so long as you accept the, uh, the lectures, teachings, and ideology of those that say there is an oppression, an, an oppressed minority, and that it's at the hands of whites. So, for example, if I get you right, the author of White Fragility, a woman named Robin Jean D'Angelo, she's a Caucasian woman. She can be part of the in club. She can be part of the enlightened club. Am I Am I, am I getting you about right?
0: Well, yes and no. Okay, good. Uh, good. It, in a way, you're absolutely right, uh, but in that uh, one should – the ideology states that one should make way in all realms of life. I should add, in all good realms of life. Uh-huh. Such that the marginalized are <clears throat> at the head of society, at the head of corporations, at the heads of universities, etc. Right. So that's what the theory says, but in practice, it doesn't quite happen that way. Um, just as an example, all of these uh, tenured academics, all of these, many of these CEOs many of the administrators in universities, they still are white. So the question is, why haven't they made room?
1: Right, what gives? Why have
0: they not resigned from their position to make way for marginalized people Mm -hmm. who they accept have a deeper, truer understanding of justice, of morality in other words, and are intellectually superior? Uh, as the theory of identity politics says, as I laid out earlier. Uh, so it's a bizarre thing that the theory says one thing, but in practice it doesn't quite work out that way, that in the end it's actually uh, white liberals that do call the shots and seem to greatly limit the progress in the very theories that they espouse
1: so, Ken- so does an Ibram Kendi think that, the president of his school, he's at Boston University. The president of Boston University is a Caucasian man named uh, Robert Brown. Does he think that that's an ongoing assault, an insult, that that that, that, that needs to be replaced with a person of color merely by dint of that person's color? Uh,
0: yes, I suppose that must be the case. Um, of course, Kendi never speaks up about this. Right. Because right. – you know he's very comfortable,
1: yeah he just got ten million bucks from the head of uh, Twitter right yeah.
0: that's right, and yeah. he probably makes half a million dollars a year yeah. and he probably doesn't want to ruffle feathers like
1: and Netflix is giving him uh, right some movie rights here that's yeah. it yeah
0: that's it because in the end, and this is what you know pains me about this that a lot of these intellectual leaders you know, it's one thing, you know, the, the, we talked about the Soviet Union earlier right. and a lot of the re- early revolutionaries, the first generation, they were genuine believers and they were willing to risk life and limb for their beliefs. And then you come across people like Kendi, who are also revolutionaries in their own way, but you kind of see that they're, you know, pretty easily bought off. Uh, they just want some salaries, some speaking gigs. Um, and, and and what you end up having is these very toxic and untrue doctrines, and which end up getting spread, not really for the sake of the revolution, but for the sake of enrichment and mm-hmm. personal aggrandizement. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's a bizarre thing that happens in America. In a way, it's a good thing, because it means we don't actually have revolutionaries, you know, storming governments uh, uh, like in the Soviet Union. But it, it's, as I said before it's more insidious in america because it's less obvious you know when there's a revolution every every person knows their side because it's unquestionable that you have to take up arms whereas in america it's a bizarre thing because it's so subtle it's the propaganda it's the institutions that crack down on you that demand that you think one way lest your life be destroyed uh, so that's, you know, that's our
1: situation. I get it. Uh, there's the story of Brezhnev showing his mom, one of his DACA's, and she said, ah, this is what you mean by the workers' paradise, right? Right. Exactly, exactly. You, you right. spend a good amount of time in your essay um, you, g- saying that, you know, much too much of conservatism has, has, has misunderstood this, has forgotten this. Say a word about that, which is why we're trying to reinvigorate a different or a new old conservatism, if you don't mind
0: yeah sure. Well, look um, for about a generation the the Republican Party, especially, and let's say establishment conservatives, understood itself as the party of the economy, mm-hmm. the view being that so long as we are stacking up the GDP, everything will be fine, and that's what we really promise to the American public enrichment. In, in and in a way, that's not totally wrong, uh, because it is true that we are a commercial republic and there is a kind of common good from prosperity. I mean, we don't really disagree with that. The trouble is that they thought that that alone was enough. Right. And in, 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 in stacking the GDP numbers, they made a variety of mistakes. Not only did all of the corporations that they thought that they were benefiting and therefore getting gratitude from, not only did they go woke, all of them, Mm -hmm. despite 30 years of efforts of courting, but it also meant that they didn't understand immigration and what that means for the country. They didn't understand that, no, you know, a working class and a middle class that comes from a working class actually is the backbone of a republic. And if you get rid of those jobs, you totally destroy communities, while also, I should add, enriching an adversary, or China, I mean, it wasn't even an adversary, it became an adversary because it became so powerful on account of some of, of, of these kinds of establishment Republican action. And so the problem is that while the right lost, totally lost sight of its purpose, this gave room for the left to become more and more fanatical because in that time when republicans were only talking about trade or excuse me only talking about the economy as the only measure of national health the left was capturing all of these institutions and taking them away from the right, right. now with the exception of big tech which was you know created not that long ago but all of these institutions at one point belonged to the right mm-hmm. Uh, and they were taken away. Uh, and so now uh conservatives are at a loss. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do. They don't want to follow Trump because they find him, you know, too distasteful or whatever it is. But neither do they have any of the assets that the right had in the, let's say, in the Reagan era to actually fight back the left. And, of course, when you don't have any genuine moral purpose except protecting the economy, which ends up meaning protecting oligarchs that hate you, what what you have is going along and compromising. I would recommend that all of your listeners watch an interview that Tucker Carlson did, I don't know, a couple months ago with the senator from Indiana. It was, it was so perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, Tucker said, This was during the BLM Mm -hmm. Antifa riots of Mm -hmm. the summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tucker said, you know, why are you changing these laws that are endangering police officers? And the senator, you know, in a moment of honesty said, because if we don't compromise with the left, we Mm -hmm. won't have a seat at the table.
1: This is Mike Braun. I remember it. I remember it. This is Mike Braun. Right.
0: It's a perfect, beautiful little microcosm. Yep of what the establishment right has driven itself into. You beg, you beg by compromising for a tiny place at the table that actually has no power, in fact, where you're laughed at behind your back by the powerful left. Uh, And that's what purposelessness looks like. That's what it means to become a person or a party that doesn't know what it is they're actually defending while being encircled more and more with every coming year.
1: Beautiful. Arthur, we're going to spend a lot more time over the coming weeks on this with you. I really appreciate your time very much this afternoon, this evening for you. A new conservatism must emerge. If it doesn't, America will fall. Arthur Millick from the Claremont Institute and their brand spanking new Center for the American Way of Life. Thank you, Arthur.
0: Thank you, Seth. God
1: bless you. We'll be in touch. You want to boost your health, energy, and immunity with all natural vital nutrients, tens of thousands of vital nutrients in a daily dose. I'm talking aloe vera, cherry, mango, pineapple, papaya, blueberries, garlic, cayenne pepper, kale, carrots, wheatgrass. You get it all in one daily dose, a balance of nature. I take it every single day. They have a great deal. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies Give him a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. It's kept me healthy for over a year. It'll do the same for you. Arthur's piece is really important, I think. Um, and I'll just close the hour with how he closed his essay. We can talk about it more in the next. And it certainly is um, a greater challenge now when you think about the person we were talking about passing yesterday. Mr. Limbaugh, but the right needs to reclaim its mental and moral toughness, and that can come only from reviving its purpose, the preservation of the American way of life. The right must be morally unflinching in refuting the left's ideologies. It must speak clearly and confidently about the effects of radical feminism, anti-racism and globalism. It must be prepared to protect its children, its property and its standards from encroachments. And it must ground its efforts firmly in America's central principle, equal protection under law without exception. This is the basis for forming a common good that the majority of Americans still desire. But achieving it will require that the right reinvent the political party. Unless it does so, there will be no future political parties and no country left to defend. It's much more than... The cause of conservatism, it's the cause of America. We'll be right back.